0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to the meditation time or Bible study. So good to see you. Today we are going to look at a very difficult passage from the scripture, from the book of Joshua. We are continuing the theme. It is difficult because, it's not because God is difficult, but some things, as we've been looking at paradox, something is difficult to understand. That's why we've been looking at this series called Paradox. So today, I want you to be merciful to me like you've been in the past. Just try to take in what you hear rather than react to it. You know, I think uh, this is something that we've been learning in Alive Training that is listening to understand. So this may be a test for you to listen to understand and not to answer or critique. But do critique after you, have, you feel you have understood. But, because if you react to it immediately, you're going to miss the learning. That's my point. Now, I want to preempt the whole thing by saying something like this. God sits above everything. Okay, so God is not equal to the Bible. God is not equal to our preaching. God is not equal to anything. God sits above all that. So if there is something wrong, it is not God, it is either our understanding of God or the way it is written in God's word. Do you understand what I'm saying? So God remains the same and the character of God never changes. That's why in our training, Alive training, we emphasize so much on the character of God. Yeah, I mean, it it is our understanding and also our interpretation, but also the way the scripture is written as well. So I am saying God is not equal to the Bible. God is above the Bible. And that's something we need to understand. We don't worship the Bible. We worship God. So I think we must be very careful not to worship the Bible. All right. Having said that, I want to show... Uh, share a screen. It's only two slides in it. So this is what we've been looking at. Paradox of faith, the paradox of God's promise, the paradox of God's grace, and tonight or today we are looking at the paradox of God's command. Okay, so I think why I'm focusing on this paradox is, this puts us into the faith realm. We have to walk by faith, not by knowledge. We will know when we walk with God. You see, last week I quoted from Peter's statement of confession. He said, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know. Not we know and have and believed and walk. But we have have decided to walk with you. We looked at the other statement when Jesus asked him, have you caught any fish? They said, no, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Then Jesus said, cast the net onto the right side or left side of the boat and you will have a great catch. And Peter says, what you have just said doesn't make any sense, but at your word, we will do it. You know, we will obey you because of you. What you have just said does not make sense, but you make sense. It is a relationship. It is a trust that we are depending on. Does that make sense? Sometimes many things that we hear about God may not make sense but the person of God, the one who walks with us, the one who talks with us, the one who stays with us, that person makes sense because he said, I'll never leave you. I'm always with you. We are looking at paradox of God's command and here I want to give these five points today. The distance between a great victory and a terrible defeat is just one step. One victory does not guarantee another victory or the next victory. Don't assume that the next one is going to be victorious. Third, sometimes a solution we provide is worse than the problem it is expected to solve. The fourth point is one wrong solution leads to another wrong solution you make one wrong decision, getting almost guaranteed that the next one will also be wrong. And the last thing we want to do as we finish today is to learn something from Jesus because He is the true revelation of God. Everything that we read in the Bible must be attested with what Jesus lived and said. Remember, uh, I still remember when I first went to Bible school, we studied the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person whose life and teachings are exactly the same. We study the teachings of Buddha. We study the teachings of Mahatma Gandhi or Muhammad or whoever. But the only place where we have the life and teaching, the life attested teaching, the teaching corresponds to life. Uh, It's it's a fantastic way. It's the life and teaching of Christ. Okay, now I'm going to get out of here and then I'm going to read. The distance between a great victory and a terrible defeat is one step. The distance between the mountaintop and the bottom of the valley is one small step. Examples of men and women who have proved this dictum abound, and I'm not going to mention any. Even the Bible is not short of stories illustrating this truth. Last week we observed how the moment of victory for Israel was also the moment of defeat. We read, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. God was with Joshua, Joshua's fame spread throughout the land. The next verse says, But the Israelites were unfaithful. The moment of success can also be the moment of defeat. Earlier, in one of our studies, we saw how it happened to King David. I'm not going to go into the details. I've been saying this uh, a couple of times now. We saw how David, the shepherd boy, morphed into a soldier in a matter of seconds. It only took the few seconds from the time the stone left his sling and struck the giant's forehead. David was a different man. The next moment, we see David holding the giant sword, the very weapon that he despised only a few minutes before. The next moment we read about his tent. Hey, where did this tent come from? He's a shepherd boy who comes to visit his brothers with some food because the father sent him. In fact, took him out of the field and sends him. But as soon as the giant falls, we read, he took the giant sword and put it in his tent. No idea where he got this private tent from. He was not even sharing one with his brothers in his tent, not his brother's tent. It's amazing how this morphing happens. In fact, he has become their leader with his own private tent. We see this in the case of Prophet Elijah. One moment, we see him standing victoriously challenging the might of the king Ahab on Mount Carmel. And the next, we see him hiding in a cave afraid of the Queen Jezebel. One moment he is the embodiment of life, the agent of God. The next he hates the thought of being alive and pleads with God to destroy his life. In the first half of Genesis chapter 12, we see Abraham receiving the promise of God for the entire mankind. He is God's representative on earth and God's gift to the world that is yet to come. Through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, is the promise. In the second half of the same chapter, we see him in a foreign land, lying, cheating and profiteering. Same chapter, Genesis 12, go home and read it. What is important for us today is to examine how Joshua solved the problem that he faced. In Joshua 7, the historian writes about Israelites' second attack on the cities within the promised land. Joshua sends 3,000 fighting men to destroy Ai, and they were repulsed. Thirty-six men die as they flee before the enemies, enemies they had believed to be already conquered. Israel's pride and confidence is thrashed. I want you to listen to the prayer of Joshua at that. It is profound. It reveals the heart, the human nature. No matter how long you've been walking with God, no no matter how long you've been a disciple of a great leader like Moses who understood the heart of God. You know Moses was God's friend and Joshua was his disciple. Listen to the prayer. Joshua cries out to the Lord, Why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? No different from what it was before when they were wandering in the wilderness. The Lord replies very boldly, telling him to get up and recognize the sin at work among his people. Israel has sinned, God told Joshua. The Lord explains, They have violated my covenant. They have taken some of what was set apart. This is Joshua chapter 7, verse 11. God had strictly warned them, not to take for themselves any spoils of the war, but they disobeyed. The distance between a great victory and a terrible defeat is one step. One victory does not guarantee the next. It only makes the fall more painful and shameful. The next step after the victory is crucial, as we saw last week. The fall of the walls of Jericho made Joshua famous, and it seems he did not mind it. Did he seek fame? Probably no. Did he encourage it? Most likely no. Did he discourage it? Uh Aha, he did not seem to do that either. So did you see that sequence I just read out? Do you want me to read that again? Did he encourage the fame that was coming to him? I would say most likely no, he did not encourage it. Then the next question is, did he discourage it? I would say most likely no. And that is the problem. Did he seek it? No. You see, this is the tragedy of it. Did I seek it? No. Did I encourage it? No. But did I discourage it? The answer would be no. He did not seem to do that either. Three questions. Do you actively do the wrong thing? Question number two. Do you passively allow the wrong thing to happen? Question number three. Do you actively prevent the wrong thing happening? These are the challenges that we need to face. Let me read those three questions again. Do you actively do the wrong thing? I think most of us would say no. Do you passively allow the wrong thing to happen? Do you actively prevent the wrong thing from happening? Okay, I am really being nasty on Joshua. I'm, I'm scathing of Joshua, I concede. Let us examine what happened after they were defeated by the city of Ai. This is something we need to listen to. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord! Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? Now, verse 9, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. Now, this is the problem. It is not that we lost the battle, it is what other people are going to think about us. That is a problem. Because remember, how did the chapter end? Joshua's fame was spreading. This was a hero. You know, this is like, you know, they hit a, 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 what is that, a double hundred or two, what is it, double century, the cricket and the next time you go and get out for a duck, you know, sort of thing, you know, it's just not on. It can't be. This is not possible. You know, so the problem is not that we lost the battle. The problem is really beautifully summed up. The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Um, What then will you do for your own great name? What a wonderful question. So Joshua says, what are you going to do? God, you are in a pickle. You have no idea what you have just done. You thought it was a little battle, didn't you? No, 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 no. This was much bigger than you thought. I love it. He says, the Canaanites and other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name, our name from the earth. What then will you do for your great name? Wow. Joshua really puts it back on God and says, you better do something. Otherwise you are a dead man, you know. Uh, or something along those lines, dead God or whatever. So what do we learn? First, God, it's your fault. We could have happily stayed on the other side of the river. We have heard this theme so many times as they were wandering around the wilderness about the leeks and the garlic and bottles what and whatnot in Egypt. It was wonderful. Why didn't you leave us alone? Uh, this was a standard uh, recital, almost like a liturgy in a, in, a, in an Anglican church kind of thing. Number two, Other people are going to hear about this terrible humiliation and guess what? Our name will be wiped out from the earth. I can even imagine Joshua thinking as he was lying face down. I was a famous man yesterday. Look what you have done, God. People are beginning to laugh at me. I am humiliated. I can't handle it. Yesterday I was a famous man, today I am just nothing. This must be awful. I wish if I was never famous. Don't you sometimes think? I wish I was never, never famous. That's why I cancelled my Facebook account because I don't want to be famous. I'm sure that is that is the argument here. Uh, number three. Did you forget that if we are not famous, you are not famous? In fact, you are just a nobody without us. What then will you do for your great name. Examine your prayers. How often do we pray like this? Dear Lord, for your name's sake, make us wonderful. For your glory, do this. Heal so and so, for your name's sake. God says, my name is perfectly intact. I'm only worried about your name, so go and sort it out. That's what God says to Joshua, virtually. God speaks to Joshua, and this is my translation. Stop sulking Joshua. Stand up. That's what he said. You read the passage. It says, uh, Joshua, get up. Stand up. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? As if he were saying, Joshua, you may be a very famous man, but I don't like talking to people wallowing in self-pity. So get up. So would you please get up? Go and wash your face. I can't stand all this ash and rubbish on your face and on your head. Go and take a bath kind of thing you know and um, I I don't I can't stand people with dirt all over their face by the way while you're at it can you also put on something decent if you haven't noticed your robe is torn I don't like speaking to naked people either you know this is fascinating God says to Joshua stand up you know this I don't like you lying on your face just because you are not famous anymore some years later We would hear God say the same thing to another great adventurer for God. What are you doing here, Elijah? He says, "Elijah, what are you doing here?" Elijah also said, "I want to die." It's amazing all these prophets. You know, Jonah three times in the book of Jonah he says, "Please, I want to die." I I mean, what's the matter with these guys? As soon as something goes wrong, they want to commit suicide. You know, you think you know they talk about mental illness in COVID. You know, mental illness is the classic companion of every so-called adventurer for God, evangelists and uh, preachers and prophets. You know, so so he says, Elijah says, I want, I want to die. God says, what's the matter with you? The third point I had is sometimes the solution we provide is worse than the problem it is expected to solve. And that is exactly what happened here. Instead of calling the nation to repentance, Joshua punished one man And his family. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up, what are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. Listen, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. Plural, they, not he, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possession. Israel, the whole nation. God said, and I was just for the heck of it, I was reading, checking some commentaries. You know, the preachers are so wonderful. And um, see, this is a problem with us. Somehow we feel that we have to prop God up as if God can't stand on his own two legs or her own two legs. God can, believe me. By the way, if you're wondering, God is also black, not always white. I just thought I'll mention that in case you're wondering. We don't need to prop up God. God can stand on his own two legs. There is no problem with that. And as I was reading some of the commentaries, oh, they were saying, when God says Israel has sinned, he was saying, Achan's sin has affected the whole of Israel. So one man's sin affects the whole nation. I would reverse it and say, what happened was the whole nation's sin, one man pays for it. That is what happened here. The whole nation sinned, but one man was made to pay. Why? Because it is impractical to stone the whole nation. You know why it is impractical? There is no one to stone them. You see, you can't stone yourself, can you? You can shoot yourself, but you cannot stone yourself. So they decided that one man should die. Sorry, that was a bit of a joke. But stoning is not a joke. Was it a case of one person's sin affecting the whole nation? Or one person being made to pay for the sin of the whole nation? This is a question we need to ask. Israel was now very familiar with the practice of an animal being sacrificed for the nation on the Day of Atonement. That was the law of Moses. And at other times, they were also accustomed to the practice of the scapegoat. Remember, once a year, the priest would lay his hand on a goat, in uh, a blameless goat, and confess the sin of the nation and send it away, where the sin of the entire nation was placed on a goat and that goat led away into the wilderness. Keeping these things in mind, I would say that Joshua introduced the scapegoat mechanism here. Achan and his family were made to pay for the offence of the entire nation. I like you to read the text. The text is a little bit confusing as to what God said and what Joshua said. It's a little bit confusing. Go and read it, read for yourself, and um, try to understand it. I don't have a problem with that, but this is how I understand it, and I'm not saying this is right. I'm saying this is the way I have understood. This was exactly the same solution that Caiaphas suggested to the religious leaders concerning Jesus. Remember what Caiaphas said? It is better for one man to die for the nation rather than the whole nation to perish. One victim was chosen. Joshua's words to Achan are passionate and convincing. He said, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession to Him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. What a compassionate request. This is chapter 7 verse 19. Just one man was asked to make a confession. Why did he not ask anybody else to make a confession? If he had asked a hundred people, they would have all confessed exactly like Achan. That's what I'm saying. But only one man was asked to make a confession. Just one man was asked to make a confession when God had already declared that the entire nation had sinned. Nobody else was questioned or forced to make a confession. Scapegoating is one-man solution for a national problem. Actually, I have a new word for it. I call it scapegoating, not scapegoating, because I escape by making you pay for it. That's what it is truly. It is not scapegoating, it is a scapegoating. Soon a purging ceremony was initiated. Joshua and all Israel with him took the offender, the stolen goods, his sons, his daughters, and everything that belonged to him, and stoned them to death. The Bible tells us, All Israel stoned him with stones, and then burned them with fire, after they had stoned them with stones. Upon the charred remains of Achan and his family, they heaped up a large pile of stones. Then the Lord turned from his fears, anger. Joshua. Chapter 7 verse 28. I believe that many of the people who participated in the stoning that day may also have been guilty of stealing forbidden goods. If Joshua had taken trouble to examine their tent, they would have found gold and silver and precious whatever hidden in the tent, just like um, Achans. God's anger that was initially directed to the entire nation was turned away. At the end of this purging ceremony, happy God, happy people, this is the power of scapegoating. As the narrator concludes the story, all that remains was a pile of rocks. Over Aiken, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Says the narrator, "It's actually the rock is still there." Says the narrator, "The victim was made." invisible and his voice silenced forever. Nobody can ever again ask Aiken, Aiken, do you know if anybody else took it with you? Did you talk to anybody about it? No, because he is silenced. It's almost like that poor girl in the Harta or whatever village in UP. The parents were not even allowed to see her dead body after she was gang raped, brutally victimized. And ill-treated even in a hospital and by the police and then burnt before they could get a decent funeral. So it still goes on, silenced. But if we do not see the silencing of the victim or silencing of one man, one man being used and used up here in the Bible, we are not going to see this happening in UP. That is the point that I'm trying to make we must recognize that it happened here in the Bible. Just like yesterday we were studying about the Levite's concubine, Maggie. You were leading it. If we cannot see the treachery and the evil of it, and if we justify it for, by saying that the Levite's concubine was a figure of Jesus Christ, you have lost it. She was not a figure of Jesus Christ. She was a woman being brutally abused by everyone involved including the old man who appeared to be generous and kind. We must see it. This is one man being made to pay a huge price for the sin of the nation. Happy God, happy people. The victim was made invisible and his voice silenced forever. The next point, One wrong solution leads to another wrong solution. Confession without repentance creates communities without conscience. If all we have is confession and no repentance to go with it, then we have communities without conscience. Communities without conscience do not take time for introspection. They are too busy looking for someone else to blame. As a result, they deprive themselves of the opportunity for correction and learning new truths. A community that does not learn from its past mistakes lives only to repeat the same mistakes. They will either look for a new scapegoat or change the rule book. What do you think happened here? Uh Aha! I'm sure you hadn't seen it, have you? With the murder of Aiken, uh, you have to wait for this. With the murder of Aiken, so I said they will either look for a new scapegoat or change the rule book. With the murder of Achan and his family, the rule book got changed. Yeah, that's what happened. The next chapter of the book of Joshua opens with a startling revelation. Chapter 8, verse 2. You shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Listen to this. Except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourself. Did you understand what that is all about? You see, why was Achan stoned, his family, his donkey and his ass and his cattle and his uh, uh, rat in his house and everything? Because he took something for himself. Next chapter, second verse. What does it say? You shall do it to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Except, the rule book is changed here. There is an amendment. You know, it's the Sixth Amendment, the Americans have or something like that. There is an amendment here. The amendment is, except that you may take whatever you like out of the spoils. You know, so if you saw a bar of gold, take it. If you see a woman wearing a gold chain, murder her and take a ma- chain. No problem. Do you get the point? In chapter 7, Aiken and his family were stoned and burned and buried. Why? Because they took something, a spoil from the war. But in next chapter, chapter 8, it says, no, it's okay. Now, let me go back and read that again. A community that does not learn from its past mistakes lives only to repeat the same mistake. They will either look for a new scapegoat or change the rulebook. So what they did was they changed the rule book. Of course, it is God's word, don't get me wrong. But I have preempted it right at the beginning God sits above everything else okay that's probably why I gave you that caveat God sits above everything somebody went and changed the rule book and said God said it well maybe God said it maybe somebody put the words into God's mouth please don't stone me permission is granted to pilfer and plunder it's okay you can steal see Why was this instruction not given before the first attack of A.I.? It only happens after the first attack when they lost the battle. Because Joshua knew that his people were going to break the law. The spoils of war was too tempting and they are going to take them. Then he will have to have another stoning ceremony. The easiest way out is change the rule book. Now the rules are changed so you don't have to stone anyone. And everybody is happy because they can all have their own little treasure trove. Let's keep going. Maybe we will understand something more uh, as we keep journey. I told you this is going to create more questions than <laughs> any of the Bible studies I have done. But all I want to say is I would like God to sit above these things. Don't contaminate God's character. God's character must be supreme. If what has happened doesn't add up with God's character something has gone wrong in translation I mean you know that movie uh, Lost in Translation and here I think it is lost without translation so that is a point that I'm trying to make earlier God said Israel has sinned they have violated my covenant and so on according to the new amendment You can carry off their plunder and livestock for yourself. It is not a violation of God's covenant anymore. It is not stealing. It is not lying. What was sin yesterday is not sin today. That's what happened. What was sin yesterday is not sin today. It is like good old Charlie, you know, that's a Prince Charles, getting a new law. You know, there was a king who had to abdicate not so long ago. In our memory. Why? Because he wanted to marry a divorcee. But when Charles had to marry a divorcee, they just changed the law. You see, it's very simple. It's the easiest way to do it. Sorry, all those who are from the kingdom of the United Land uh, with your kings and their mistresses and so on. My apologies. Uh, But um, you see, this is the easiest way to do it. We know it. There was a king not so long ago who wanted to marry Mrs. Simpson, whatever her name was, and um, lost the plot. He had to abdicate. So what was sin yesterday is not sin today. Is that the God that you know in the Bible? According to the new amendment, you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourself. What do we read at the end of the chapter? But Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of this city, as the Lord had instructed Joshua. So in the previous chapter, Achan and his family and his dog and his donkey were put to death, stoned and burned for doing something, and the very thing was allowed to happen in the following chapter. Chapter 7 of the book of Joshua ends with the words, A large pile of rock heaped up on Achan remains to this day. As chapter 8 of the book of Joshua nears its end, we read, Israel did carry off for themselves the livestock and plunder of the city as the Lord had instructed Joshua. We are talking about paradox. Don't panic. This is something we need to reconcile with. We are talking about paradox. Then we read, chapter 8, verse 29, He impaled the body of the king of Ai on a pole, and left it there until evening. At sunset, Joshua ordered them to take the body from the pole and throw it down at the entrance of the city gate. And they raised a large pile of rocks. Remains to this day. What Joshua did to the king of Ai is despicable and inhuman. We must condemn it. If you don't condemn it, you will repeat it. In the name of God. It must be condemned, despicable and inhuman. Don't ever think that God sanctioned it or received any pleasure out of it. It was Joshua's doing and it was wrong. We make a big thing out of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This man was crucified, left impaled all day and then his body was thrown at the city square. And then stones were heaped on him. Last bit. What Jesus did. Jesus had a similar scene. In John Gospel we read, an angry mob brings a woman who was caught fresh in the act of adultery, committing adultery. Jesus invited the angry crowd to reconsider their response to the woman caught in adultery. Though she was the only one censured that day, she was not the only one who was found guilty that day. The stone-throwing crowd wanted to have a clear conscience by eliminating one sinner from their midst. But since Jesus came to put an end to all such purging rituals, He exposed their hypocrisy and pointed out that they all needed to come clean. Israel could have come clean with a clear conscience if they repented instead of murdering Achan. That's the point I'm trying to make. Instead of murdering Achan and his family, they should have had a repentance ceremony. They should have all repented. Like the city of Nineveh repented. Even the donkey repented in the city of Nineveh. The king did. The common people did, even the animals walked around in sackcloth. Jesus stood with the accused woman in silence, creating a moment of introspection, without accusation. The crowd stood still, stones in their hand, while Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. Did he write, Mene, mene tekel uparsin, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. There is no doubt even by their own measure they were found wanting. Jesus gently suggested that they measure themselves with the same measure they had applied to this woman. That day He not only stopped a mob violence against a helpless victim but exposed the myth of the single victim mechanism which is what Joshua did. One victim paying a price for the entire nation. Long before they brought this woman before Jesus, they knew that they were not guiltless. They were hoping that through this purging ceremony, they could expiate themselves because they were doing something for God by murdering one, one bad woman. The difference between the endings of these two stories, that is a story we find in Joshua chapter seven and John's gospel chapter eight, stories the man caught with the stolen goods and the woman caught in adultery is critical. In the earlier narrative, mob violence was initiated and enacted by their leader and the representative of God, Joshua. In the latter narrative, the religious leaders initiated the process but Jesus, the representative of God, stopped the process. That is the difference. The job of the church is to stop mob violence. Scapegoating not activated. The difference is that Jesus created space for introspection. Jesus Intercepted the mimetic contagion, sorry, that's another word that I haven't explained, and stopped it before it culminated in the murder of the woman. The other staring obvious is in the first instance, the leader stood with the crowd against the accused with stone in his hand. He orchestrated and initiated the violence, and the crowd followed him. He created a classic case of what is called unanimity minus one because the only person who doesn't agree with what is happening is the victim. Everybody else is unified. In the second instance, Jesus stood away from the crowd without stones with the victim. The victim did not stand alone. She stood with the one who came from God to take away the sin of the world. We must understand that and read backwards with that in mind and interprets everything we read up to then in the light of this. That the one who comes from God stands with the accused, not against the accused. The difference in the gospel story is graphic and powerful. The angry mob slowly departed the scene, one by one. I am not sure if this is what Jesus expected Expected them to do. I think he was hoping, most likely, that they would experience solidarity with the one who came to be their scapegoat. He prevented the stoning murder of one victim, but soon he would take their place and they would kill him, hang him on a cross. Yes, they walked away that day, but they did not change with evil intentions. Instead of the woman, they would kill the one who stood with the woman. If they had stayed, they would have learned the other lesson he had for them. They could have all gone back to their village together, the accused woman and the accusing men. This would have been the greatest example of the formation of a reconciled community. If we fail to understand the power of forgiveness, we fail to comprehend how God works in His world. Forgiveness is the greatest hallmark of a reconciled and restored community. Neither do I condemn you. So here is the conversation. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she replied. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. As the curtain closes on this powerful drama of attempted scapegoating, we see just two people on stage. We read, Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. The scapegoat and the Lamb of God, the one who was victimized and the one who carries the guilt away, standing together. This imagery must be in our minds. God never stands in opposition to the sinner. He stands with the guilty. He takes the place of the victim, the guilty, the offender. Remember, in our training, not only the victim, but even the victimizer also needs support and understanding. Hurt people hurt and hurt people heal. As the curtain closes in on this powerful drama of attempted scapegoating, we see just two people on stage. Only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, the scapegoat and the Lamb of God, the one who was victimized and the one who carries the guilt away. Standing together on the very spot where there could have been a dead woman buried under a heap of stones if Jesus had not done the right thing. And that is the difference between what Jesus did and what Joshua did. This is how God had intended it. A new community began to take shape. The guilty and the innocent. The one who forgives and the one who is forgiven. Standing together. Heaven bending down to embrace the earth. Salvation is more than freedom from guilt, liberation from the past is only one aspect of healing. Having redeemed, liberated and empowered her, he sent her back to her community to the very people who accused and dragged her to be stoned. Sent her back to her community to be a living testimony to the healing power of God. She became a witness. Jesus did not take her out of the community, but has sent her back to her community to be a means of grace. She who was a sinner until now, fit for being stoned, is now turned to be a means of grace, God's grace. And that's a power of forgiveness. That's a power of healing. A means of grace, an agent of God's healing for her community. Go and sin no more, he said to her. commanded her. The greatest witness she can now have is her changed life. I would like you to interact with what you have heard. I believe what happened in Joshua chapter 7 was a travesty of justice. It was a tragedy. It was Joshua finding a solution for a larger problem. A simple solution for a huge problem. Just like Caiaphas found a simple solution for a huge problem. It is better that one man die for the whole nation. Achan was made a scapegoat or an scapegoat. And God forbid that we ever fall into that trap. The answer for sin, whether it be one person's or many people's, is repentance. And Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The challenge before us is: can be introspect. Otherwise, we will have to change the rule book. Chapter 8, Joshua changed the rule book because he knew he cannot consistently keep stoning people. That is where we are in our church today because we found repentance too hard. So we changed the rule book so we don't have to feel guilty or repent. That is not God's way. Well, God bless you.